you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Fast Money starts right now. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grosso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, stocks kicking off the new month with a bit of a whimper, but a top strategist says don't fear the September swoon. Plus, the CEO of controversial Potsdam Kronos Group will be here to talk about the cannabis craze and why he says the short sellers are getting it all wrong. But first, we start with amazing Amazon. Somewhere, CEO Jeff Bezos is smiling, maybe even laughing, as the company becomes the second one ever to hit a trillion dollar valuation coming in right behind Apple a month ago and the stock looks to be on an unstoppable run in 2018 up a whopping 75 percent adding more than 430 billion dollars in market cap so do you just keep buying Amazon and will these tech titans carry the market uh, on its shoulders guy what do you say leading with Aerosmith is fantastic so by that alone you should continue to buy Amazon but I'll say this and Tim might actually agree with this We've been pretty constructive on Amazon for quite some time, but now you're looking at it at a point where on a relative strength index, it's pretty much ahead of its skis. Now, that's not to say the stock is going to collapse. The stock can trade sideways, and that relative strength index can come back to levels that actually make sense. But I think at these levels, it's gotten a little bit ahead of itself, and I wouldn't be surprised to see over the next month, month and a half, this stock trades sideways to slightly lower. Well, what concerns me is just the, the portion of the market's move that's been contained in this, you know, mega cap tech. And that's what bothers me. So, yeah, I think a little over the skis guy. I actually agree with that. Um, I think Amazon's biggest issues, though, are not valuation, are not even positioning. I think it's the regulatory environment. I've said this before. I, I, I think there could be antitrust against Amazon at some point, not because they're dominating any one particular sector, but because for a long time they've been in business not to make money, but to push into market share. So um, I think one of the greatest things they've actually done in the last you know, couple of years is the Whole Foods deal, because I think their encroachment into that trillion and a half dollar consumable space is a place that, first of all, benefits all consumers right now. And I think it's uber competitive. And I think they're putting a lot of pressure on Walmart, which is why well, I don't like Walmart. There would be a tough thing to do the anti-competitive uh, nature, especially with this with this administration. But you would think, how really? would that why? break? Why? This administration has, has, no, Trump, with, has Trump broken out DOJ at any time they want. I mean, Last week, Trump just said that Amazon, amongst the other big tech companies, were acting in a very antitrust manner. Right. I think it would be too difficult. To, they have so many different levers that they can pull that I don't think it would be effective with Amazon to actually go the route of regulation. I think everyone knows that that was sort of out there, but I think it's too complicated Who to do it. Who has levers I don't they can pull? I don't understand. What, which part don't you get? Amazon has a lot of levers, a lot of income streams, a lot of revenue sources. Okay. So I you meant the so, government. If they wanted to go after them, they could do other things. No, no, I, I don't. I think it would be too convoluted for the government to go after them. I think because they have so many uh, revenue streams, mm -hmm. it would be difficult to have anything long-lasting on Amazon. I mean, to your point, in a way, I mean, if, if, anti, if antitrust stems from being too big, right, and the solution is to break up the company in some way, actually, that would probably be a good yeah. for shareholders. That would probably unlock a lot of value um, for AWS. But it wouldn't be good for well, consumers, well, would it? I mean, isn't it ultimately about yeah, protecting I'm not, consumers, I'm not, sure, not right. shareholders? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, again, but that's not the I question, didn't though, say I think they're, they're technically or definitionally in a place where they are um, too big in any one sector. But they have run small businesses out in 
10 sectors. Mom and pop stores are getting crushed by Amazon. Somebody cares about that. I don't know who. What do you think? I mean, it is, it is ironic that this administration might be one who would be anti-Amazon since they have, I mean, you know, they've grown organically, except for a few things like the, like the Whole Foods. But it's interesting to me, though, I don't know if this last move is just analysts sort of falling all over themselves to put very big targets out there and be the first one, or if, you know, we've had a huge retail run, if Amazon as retailer, mm -hmm. it's not just that, you know, they're taking share away, it's that consumers are spending everywhere, everywhere. I mean, Singles Day, even with the, uh, or, or Prime Day, rather, even with the, the uh, momentary, I don't know, whatever, the, the site didn't work, but still, it was an extraordinary day. It's astounding to me, though, the stock, the, you can't get comfortable with it on a retail valuation. You have to get comfortable with it on their growth, their ability to just grow in all new kinds of businesses for a while. And they've actually been able well, to do we, that. We've I would all never short for Apple was supposed to be the top of the, the top of the market, ring the bell, trillion dollar valuation, and that was 10% ago. So we've seen that happen. Amazon has been over the skis months ago and is up from $1,300 the last time. It was way over its skis. Here's the, let me just point out one thing that I noticed today that I thought was really interesting. So Amazon, a trillion dollars. If you look at just today, if you look at any time the stock was trading, so it traded, let's say, $2,039 bid, $2,039.5 offer. Just that spread of market cap is bigger than the entire Sears Holdings market cap. <laughs> Sears was the Amazon of its day, right? It's, a, it's unbelievable for us to imagine now Amazon being absolutely dwarfed. Guy still buys his there, don't you? Yes, yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. Get tough, the cat tough, using catalogs. The catalog skins, by horse skins. and buggy. animals, too, I think. Or I, I, why wouldn't I? <laughs> I mean, the catalog is fantastic. We got people laughing in the peanut gallery <laughs> over there. <laughs> Somebody and, liked it. You know, the good news for Amazon is they're getting into higher margins business, something we've talked about for a while. And the Morgan Stanley upgrade cited that exactly when they, I think, put a $2,500 price target on it. My point about RSI is... Maybe the stock has been ahead of itself, but now in terms of that metric alone, it certainly is. You know, stocks typically trade somewhere between, let's say, 45 and 70 in this RSI. You have Amazon now trading north of 80, which you, last time we saw these lofty levels was probably 20 or so years Let ago. Let me ask you this. It seems like the only reason why you don't like Amazon at this point is technical. Technical, absolutely Fundamentals, tech. it all lines you know, up. The, so so all these bullish the analysts on the street who are saying, oh, it's you know, revenue growth is slowing, but margins are great, you know, cloud is going to be amazing, it's going to keep up the margin. Like, you believe all that. They it doesn't worry they could, you that everybody's on one side on this trade. They could prove to be correct, absolutely. Everyone was so far on the other side on this trade for years. Everyone said short Amazon and then short it again. It was based on valuation. Now everyone realizes that they can turn that lever or turn the screws whenever they want during earnings and kill the shorts. It's impossible to short. I don't think they care about killing the shorts, though. I think this is a very different no. kind of CEO than... I, than I'm sorry, I'm I don't sorry. Think I, don't, I, don't, I think that people willing to short it are afraid to short it. The, the, the couple things. First of all, guys talking about RSIs, and we try not to get too wonky on this, but I, I think it's right to talk about when things get overbought. Um, the cool thing about RSIs is you can go from overbought to not so overbought pretty quickly. So I don't think analysts are going to make their call based upon that. Um, I, you know, the part of their business model to me that I would be most worried about would be AWS. I realize that's been the growth engine except for the fact that that's the place that they're competing against some of the biggest names out there in tech, and it's going to be commoditized. Look, the cloud is what it is. It's enterprise, and, and there's a lot of people that are looking to play in that space. So if anything, that's where the multiple gets compressed from whatever levels we're at. Before we move on, 
I would like to play a game of Would You Rather. Oh. <laughs> would You Rather. And the choice is between the two trillion dollar market cap companies, oh. Apple or oh. Amazon. Guy Dami. Is there a rather? time frame for this game? Well, based on what I just said at the top of the show, saying how on an RSI it's overbought, and Tim is right. I mean, if it goes sideways for the next couple of weeks, that RSI actually gets more manageable. But given that I said that it's RSI, it's overdone, I'd have to say Apple. By the way, I like that you brought that up this morning with Joe Kernan <laughs> at 6 a.m. in the morning. I mean, Would you, you just got the whole clock going. It's amazing, because he didn't know the games we still play. No, because he, he thought we still he's yeah. play games right now. Drops. No, no, he he right now. Pops and drops. He thought we still did pops and drops on oh, the show, well, which we clearly we have not done for a good long time. But I think you should keep the games to this show. I'm a little jealous. I mean, I'm a little... <laughs> that we're always playing games with other people? Well, yeah, <laughs> if I must. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Our next guest says Amazon's amazing run is about to come to an end. Chartmaster Carter Worth is at the plasma to break it all down. Hey, Carter. I want to sort of address what uh, Guy was talking about. It's really technical. The question is, can you be a little ahead of yourself and have give-back risk? I think that's the issue here. There's nothing wrong with the stock. There's nothing wrong with the story. It's just sometimes things get a little too far too fast. Here is a log scale, so it's not the parabolic that one might expect for the past decade. And if I were to just put in some lines, I would um, point out the following. That this stock, as you can see here, has had plenty of give-backs. That's 30%. That's 32. That's 17. That's 30. That's 32. That's 16. That's 14. Just a, two or three months ago, we had a 16. So the issue is, let's move forward, is that kind of thing out there? Now, I want to zero in on this more immediate period in the past decade. And what we know is you've bounced off this line repeatedly, but you've come back to it. So the question is, in the past three years, are we due for that kind of thing? So zeroing in on the here and now, what we know is that it's the same circumstance. Do we have the risk of coming back? Well, take a look. Just put the, put the percentages in. Again, this is just over the last three years. Same circumstance. Let's just put it in context. This can happen in just a matter of days. It doesn't mean it's bearish or bullish. It's just the sequence of an uptrend. Uptrends often have little givebacks. And I'm betting that we have that kind of thing now. Let's go forward a little further. And so I want to talk about its spread with Facebook and then move to Facebook specifically. Obviously, high flyers can come to an end abruptly. Here's the two-year, three-year chart of Facebook versus Amazon. Let's go a little further. Here's the past five years. And so obviously, that does not imply that Facebook, uh, Amazon has to do what Facebook did. But we know that out of nowhere, things can change. So Facebook, and then uh, we'll end there. Facebook has this very distinct problem. It has this huge, heavy volume sell-off, and it has a second huge, heavy volume sell-off. That's all very distributive in nature. It has all the look of a topping-out formation. So one is weak, and I wouldn't be long, and the other is a little too hot, and I would want to reduce my longs. I think Carter comes over without oh, a doubt. Without Carter, please come on over. Michelle will bring the chair in. So well-dressed, too. <laughs> Better dress than anybody else. here, that's you. for sure. Well, Thank very you, Michelle. Very beautiful. So, Amazon right now, you agree with Guy? Right. So, I mean, the issue is, again, it has nothing to do with its long-term story. Right. Would you rather? I'd rather probably own them both, Apple and Amazon, forever. But the issue is, can you be a little hot? Yes. Can you have a, a moment in time where, let's take Apple, all of a sudden, Buffett, not that he, that he wasn't involved in the beginning, he missed the first 10, 20 years, maybe he's calling the top by getting involved. The point is... We just got to the trillion dollars, sort of an arbitrary thing. 
I'd trim. I'd write calls. There's a good option show on Friday. Uh, that has <laughs> Love how you yes. did that. Thanks for the plug, Carter. Um, in terms of the check back, to your eye, what kind of check back would we be looking for this time so, around? Again, uh, whatever nomenclature one, a pullback dip, sell-off, correction. I mean, those are all sort of, now the worst ones were 30, but it can be 10, it can be 12, it could be 20. And nothing would have changed with the juggernaut that is the Sears of its day, the Walmart of its day. But that line... That I mean, line, implicit in that is that there's that a check line, back to that I mean, line, that line, and that would be what depends. percentage right well, now? if you came down in one day, as opposed to coming down over a period of time, that's basically 16, 18 percent. Okay. So those checkbacks, when I look back on it, are a matter, I think you pointed this out, they could happen very quickly. And it looks like on one of the biggest ones, or a bigger one, it was six days of a checkback, and then within 12 days it was higher than where the checkback started. So when we look at this, is it too hard to thread that needle, number one? Number two, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft are a huge component as far as market cap of the S&P. Do you think S&P checks back? Well, so let's take the last part first. The top three stocks, um, right, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple are now more than 11% of the S&P. They're the value of the bottom 250. Originally, that was the beginning of their bottom 200. But, 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 in, the, but in the case of Amazon... Can one do it? That's always the question. Does one have that kind of dexterity? Surely, uh, you know, listeners and people who uh, love the show can do that if they want to be tackled. Certainly an option. If you're running a long-only mutual fund and that's not your game, of course you can't do it. Meaning it's all about who you are in the market, knowing who you are, and then what you can or can't do. At a minimum, why not write some calls? Right calls. I just want to make sure I understood what you were saying, Facebook, relative to Amazon. Were you saying you would be long, in the short term? Oh, I, no, I, or, I think one, one is got a problem that's probably going to get worse, Facebook. Okay. And one is a little hot from my little rich, and I would say reduce or write calls, do something. Okay, so it wasn't one relative no, to no, the other. No, no, just showing how they were quite correlated and things can change, right? I mean, you know, it, it's often out of nowhere, too. I would just ask that, you know, if I look at, you know, our biggest concern is that FANG is now 30% of the NASDAQ. So this, is, this to me is the market question. Forget Amazon, because I think they're all trading together outside of Facebook, which has its own issues. Right. Give me that story now for the next couple of months. Well, that's right. So, I mean, or it's not even so much FANG as it is sort of idiosyncratic growth, large cap, because it's Visa. Visa's doing this. It's ISRG. It's United Healthcare, mm -hmm. meaning unrelenting uptrends, Microsoft, Adobe, that have had very little give back, and yet... Case after case, we're starting to get a slippage. Red Hat, broken drop. Then Facebook, then Twitter. Meaning, it's that kind of thing. There's always the next one out there. Does it have to be Amazon? Not necessarily. But that's the reason for having some either options approach or some reducing of a long. Carter, always nice to see you. Thank, Thank you. you. Carter Braxton Ward. And he gave a plug for that, which he wasn't on on Friday, because yeah. I filled in for him, because he was out gallivanting ahead of a Labor Day weekend, <laughs> as he nice should job. be. But he's back now. Quickly, yes, though, quickly. to his point, March into April of this year, Amazon went from 1,600 to 1,400. You mentioned 12%. That's 12%. It recovered, but you did have a 12% move to the downside. 12% here gets you to 1,850-ish. That's not ridiculous. Coming up. Nike shares under pressure as its controversial ad campaign featuring former NFL player Colin Kaepernick shakes up Wall Street. Will playing politics end up backfiring on the shoe giant? Plus, as stocks sit near the highs, we asked top strategist Tony Dwyer what could go wrong. You won't believe his answer. And later, shares of pop stock Kronos Group soaring today after getting attacked by short seller Andrew Left last week. The CEO will be here to defend the cannabis craze in the company. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this.
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. Nike taking a stand in their latest ad campaign with Colin Kaepernick. As one of the featured athletes, the former 49ers quarterback tweeting an image saying, believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. The ad almost instantly sparked widespread social media backlash as hashtag Nike boycott was trending on Twitter with more than 132,000 mentions, including videos like this one of users destroying or burning their Nike shoes and apparel. Shares of the stock falling 3% today, making the shoe dog the biggest Dow loser and Moments ago, President Trump weighing in on the controversy in an interview with The Daily Caller saying Nike is sending a, quote, terrible message. So should Nike be playing politics here? Will it backfire on the brand? Tim, you're a shareholder. Well, I, I don't like to see it as a shareholder. I don't like to see any company playing politics. I mean, it just it doesn't matter what the politics are. It's, just, it's the same way that I think people want to see us talk about markets here and not get political. I just think if you're a shoe company, um, I, I would prefer you stay out of the fray. I, I, I also think this is different than a Howard Schultz and Starbucks, who at times has weighed in, because I I think the impact there might be on the image of the brand, um, but we're here. This the closest comparison I think with this is, is Dicks and guns. I mean, when Dicks Sporting Goods got out there and said, you know, this is how we're handling the whole gun issue. This is a very divisive issue. People don't feel dispassionate. They feel very passionate about it. So um, I, I get why Nike's doing it. They have a history of doing this. Good for them. Um, I also think that the athletes that they endorse. Um, are probably very much in favor for this. And think about who, where's their bread buttered? I, I mean, it's, their, it's the consumer ultimately. Um, but I do think that they're keeping an eye on the athletes. I think net-net it will be a positive for them. One day, I don't think, tells the whole story. I think, you know, there's three constituents that they have to deal with. There's their customers. Remember, less than half their business is the United States now. It's like 40% or less. So there's point. their customers, there's their shareholders, and then there's their employees. That's a very, I mean, there's over 70,000 employees at Nike. My bet is that they're proud of their company for doing this in general. Uh, the majority would be my strong suspicion. And, and I think it's this consistent with their brand. This isn't about being proud, though, Karen. This Wait. is about, is this the right thing to do Just, as a company? I think company it's consistent when... with their brand. And, and, and if their you're culture an employee, is what you're and saying. And the culture, exactly. If you work at this company, this is what this company stands for. And that's part of their campaign. I think to that constituency, I'm thinking it's so a positive. So being political thing. is a good thing for a company to be as long as people buy in is kind of what you're saying. They've definitely I, pulled if their employees, If their employees buy in, I think it is probably and, and a good And consumers. Thing I think ultimately it's consumers yeah. that have to buy into it. Mm -hmm. Personally, I'm probably going to go elsewhere because I don't agree with it. I'll go elsewhere. But to Karen's point, the international exposure is going to make this a non-event in a couple of weeks. Shareholder value, I don't think, is going to be uh, dissolved out of this. But as far as a retail consumer, no, I'm not. But you I'm think, not, but you, right away, you just pointed out how people are going to make a decision. You're making a decision. I'm making possibly. a decision. So isn't that significant? But who is the demographic? Yes, but, but I think the, the international, it's significant. We might not be the demographic, you. though. Sarah Eisen makes a very good point. Right, 35 and younger is two-thirds. Exactly, millennials. Yeah, 45% younger than 25. And I agree with Tim. I don't think that a corporation should be getting political. Right. That's, at the end of the day, I, I agree but, with that. But I also think that the international exposure is going to make this a non-event because what's important to us here, very uh -huh. important to us here, is not important to the globe. 
um, they are, but in the process, they might be appealing to millennials at the expense of alienating share of other customers. So Baby they're banking boomers. on the future customer, potentially alienating a current but who customer. knows their customer so better than Nike? You know, direct consumer. Good. I mean, direct, right? I mean, they probably know their customer as well as anybody. And Josh Brown made the same point on Twitter this morning. They're not playing for people like us. They're playing for that millennial audience that probably sort of embraces this. Again, politics aside, they're playing the long game here. So they might, they might take short-term pain for long-term game. In terms of the stock, it's been in a pretty significant uptrend since October. As long as it holds, in my opinion, 75 bucks. That is still intact. I think they report in about three weeks. Is this marketing campaign but, powerful because they only feature Colin Kaepernick? Who it doesn't is saying, only feature Colin No, no, no. Oh. I mean, within this particular message, if they oh. also had another athlete who stood for the anthem, who stood for the anthem, decided to stand for the anthem, and, and they had some kind of caption that said, stand for something oh, bigger than right. yourself, See, would I, that be as effective you could have a, whole new career a there, campaign? Missy. Or... Or is it only powerful See, because I, I they highlight Kaepernick's on stance Because on I don't this. want to comment on Colin Kaepernick. Because you, what you're saying is if you took someone from the other side of the issue and threw it out there, would you now have a balanced issue as opposed to an imbalanced one now? I don't want to get behind that. Would it be, I, but, but, but would it take the politis, political nature of the ad campaign and diffuse it because they're... They're putting forth two sides of the same issue. I, I just think that they're trying to be political here. And, and again, say, say what you want. You, everyone here is saying that they think it will have a positive impact on a brand. I didn't that say actually, positive. I well, said muted it. Okay, muted no, it. I, I, I hear you. I, I, I just think that ultimately the view here is that's interesting is, by the way, the reason Nike's stock is higher is the inflection in North America. Right. It's not international. Okay, everybody, we, we've known all about their business, and they were getting punished by losing it in North America, losing out to Adidas. So just, you know, think about it. If, if the U.S. is that important, let's not dismiss it. It's, it's, just think about the people who are against it. <clears throat> I'm, I'm against this, right? So I have four kids. I'm not going to buy Ni Nike products. So they might play the real super long game. This is the super, super long game because my kids are not going to be exposed to it. Therefore, they're not going to know that as a brand as much as we knew it as a brand growing up. Do they currently up. wear Nike clothes? Yes. You gonna take them off tonight? I'm gonna. I'm, I'm probably gonna burn them. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna burn them. But I did At tell least my wife. Donate them. You've I already did bought them. I did, <laughs> I did tell my wife last night. I said, let's just go to Adidas. Let's go to Under Armour. Let's go to something else. Hmm. Let's see how this plays out. All right, still ahead. More trouble for Tesla as Wall Street starts to turn its back on the stock. The road is starting to get crowded with competition. We will explain. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Well, if history is any indication, the Bulls won't be dancing in September. But a top strategist says it's the Bears who have it all wrong. He'll explain. Plus, I love weed. Yeah, well, so do investors, because cannabis stocks are surging. And the CEO of One Pot Company will be here to tell us what's behind the cannabis craze. Much more Fast Money after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. 
I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earth, wind, and fire may be dancing in September, but Wall Street traders usually sit this one out as it is historically a weak month for markets. Our Bob Bassani is down at the NYSE to break it down for us. Hi, Bob. Hendricks, last week, earth, wind, and fire. Today, I'm in heaven here from the 1970s. You know, it's true. September is the worst month for the S&P 500, down an average of 0.5% since 1950. But that's a fairly modest decline on average, and it's not a done deal. So September has been up. 30 of the September months, uh, of the 67 September months since 1950, it's been down 37 of those times. So do the math there. September is up about 45% of the time. That's not terrible. There are threats to the rally. Everybody knows what they are. The strong dollar, which has been killing emerging markets, and some of which, like Turkey, have separate issues of their own. There's also the trade war. Market moves on that. And the Fed continuing to raise rates is still out there. But I think the biggest threat to the rally is that stocks are no longer that cheap anymore. Prices are a lot higher. Remember, the S&P is up nearly 10 percent since the start of the second quarter. Remember, the first quarter saw that big volatility spike. And at the end of the first quarter, the S&P was down 1 percent for the year. And stocks were trading below 16 times forward earnings. That was cheap by historic standards. Today, the prices are up a lot, but earnings revisions are not going up as much. So the S&P is trading at about 17 times forward earnings. All right, that's not huge, but it is definitely more pricey. Those higher prices are causing some to get more cautious on U.S. stocks. So, for example, today Morgan Stanley told clients to reduce the weighting in U.S. stocks to a neutral from a slight overweight and to consider putting more money into Europe, which is dramatically underperformed the U.S. this year. In fact, most of the world, look at these numbers, says dramatically underperformed the U.S., you see Germany, Japan, and China, of course, down 16%. Melissa, back to you. All right, Bob. Thanks. Bob Pisani. So as we embark on a historically dangerous month with markets near all-time highs, what could go wrong? Canaccord Genuity's chief market strategist Tony Dwyer is over at the Plaza with just that. Tony, take it away. Well, Mel, it's really interesting because people are talking about uh, the September swoon, just like we're going to have sell in May and go away. And that didn't work out because the earnings are so dramatically positive, up over 25%. And really, in both the first two quarters, probably going to be that way in the third quarter. So when we're asked constantly what could go wrong, for us as an intermediate-term strategist, it's, you get an inflation spike. And when inflation spikes, interest rates tend to spike. And when interest rate tends to spike, you get credit deterioration. In a levered economy, it's very hard to have a credit crisis if there's no stress in the credit market. And right now, we don't have an inflation spike. The inflation break-evens for the next five years, what the market expects inflation to do, has actually come down 15 basis points over the course of the last couple of months. Credit is the credit stress indicators by the Fed. They're as low as they've been in years, historically low. 
and growth slowing is not an option right now. We have the ISM report that came out this morning showed some pretty dramatic ups, upside. It, it hit a high of the cycle. Why that's important is that we found over the last 50 years, when the ISM manufacturing index hit the high of the cycle, there wasn't a recession for a median 34 months. So that's what, I, what I'm basically saying is, you shouldn't have a recession for a number of years. You can see it here, the peak of the cycle was there. The peak of the cycle was there. The peak of the cycle was there. Those are nowhere near the recession indicators, which are in the gray shaded areas, Mel. I think Tony comes over, right? I mean, is sure, that a question? That kind of, well, that okay, kind Tony, of come on over. Michelle, bring the chair in. Awesome. Come on. Double duty for Michelle. Um, hey, guys. I still am trying to get over the whole Garanimals with Guy thing. It's fantastic. You can't so Are you surprised? Are you surprised to learn that? I almost couldn't go it's on. It's very unfair to our viewers. Um, okay, so we're talking about the coming of a recession. That doesn't necessarily mean that stocks won't top out sooner than when the recession comes. So you're saying right. that recession might not come for months and months and months. Years. We could see years. We could see a peak in the stock market way before that. A peak, not a the peak. peak. See, okay. the, the problem that investors have is what happens is you think everything's fine, market goes down 5%. You start screaming that you're going to be in trouble, and then you start to sell into the weakness because you're scared that you've made the peak of the cycle. That is, as many of you know, that's the mistake. Selling into weakness, unless you have an inversion of the yield curve and a clear identifi and an identification of a recession, is a mistake. I mean, think of, we've all been doing this a while. Think of any correction that's outside of a recessionary environment in your career, should you have bought it or sold it. So you absolutely should have bought so it. So here's my question. Does a sell-off create a recession, or does a recession create the sell-off? And I ask this because consumer confidence, to me, is just an overlay of the S&P 500. And if you look, it's they both go indicator. up. It's a leading indicator. In tandem. So if the stock market were to sell off and scare people and their consumer confidence goes down, does a sell-off in the stock market cause a recession or vice versa? It has nothing to do with either, Guy. It has to do with the shutdown of credit. People keep talking about an inversion of the yield curve because it's focused on, and it may mean, it may mean that it doesn't work this cycle. That's what causes a recession. If a bank gets money at less than what they lend it for, they're going to make a loan. If a bank gets money at a higher rate than they can lend it for, they're not going to make the loan. It's math. So in, in, in this case, Guy, you have not just consumer confidence at a, at a historic high, NFIB, small business confidence, is at the high of the cycle. And now you have the ISM Manufacturing Index, which is a survey of manufacturers at the high of the cycle. So it's not just one. But back to Earth, Wind & Fire, who played on the beach in Quag <laughs> yesterday, by the way. So I actually heard them live yesterday. This song? Yes, absolutely. Wow. So let me, let me take a night. So, Tony, after the lovin's gone, what used to be right <laughs> is wrong. So the global economy isn't doing so well. That was the whole reason we were so fired up. If you looked at the PMIs that came out yesterday across Europe and China and even Japan, export orders, new orders um, were near two-year lows. Um, yeah. And everything you hear from this part of the world or those parts of the world is awful. And, w and we know that, Timothy, uh, earlier this year, when we entered the I'm year, and I was, I was, <laughs> Timothy, <laughs> it's, that's my son's name. So you are in trouble. Great name. So, <laughs> so basically, we entered the year, and everybody was talking about a global synchronized recovery and how that was going to spell gains for the rest of the of time. We were cautious back then. Um, we called for a correction, and it was because when the Fed raises interest rates and global monetary policy is less accommodative, you're going to have slower growth. Again, it comes down to money availability. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean the cycle's over. 
If you, if you thought about that from 1996 to 2000, that would have been an absolute disaster. You were in the Asian economic crisis, Russian debt default, high valuations. All the arguments of today would have decimated you as a portfolio manager or investor if you got out of the market. So what happens is you get a huge surge in volatility at times that you want to buy. So that really is our case in point, is when you get to an extreme overbought, maybe you don't chase the next tick. You absolutely do not want to ever, 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 ever sell weakness when you're not in a recessionary outlook environment, and we are not, okay. based on every indicator that we follow. 3,200 on the S&P, highest on the street. Tony, good to see you. Thank Great you, to Tony see you. Thanks Dwyer, for having me, course. Coming up, Tesla's electric storm. The stock sinking today after Goldman Sachs said increased competition could spell trouble for the stock. We've got the details. Plus, pot stocks starting the week on a high note. As some of the biggest names in the space soar, the CEO of Kronos, a company that short seller Andrew Left just targeted last week, will be here. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stocks are on fire today. This even after one notable short seller has come out and targeted two big names in the space. Aditi Roy's got all the details from San Francisco. Hi, Aditi. Hi, Melissa. One of those short seller targets, Kronos Group. It's been a wild ride for the company's shares last week. It saw a 21% move last Monday, its best day since February 6th. And following the upward trend of many cannabis companies as Canada marches towards legalization of recreational marijuana on October 17th. Then shares tumbled 28% last Thursday after Citron Research short the, shorted the stock, making it the worst day in the listing's history, dating back to July of 2016. The stock ended the regular session today up nearly 13% following that volatile week. That report also made a pointed allegation about Kronos' disclosure business agreements with Canadian provinces, saying Kronos management appears to have been deceiving the public by purposely not disclosing the size of its distribution agreements with provinces, unlike every other major cannabis player. Citron believes Kronos is only worth $3.50 a share. But other industry watchers don't agree. GMP Securities came out with its own note following the Citron note. It challenged Left's assertions and said the stock reaction was, quote, significantly overdone. And just today, Citron shorted another pot stock, Tilray. Tilray was the first pot stock to IPO on a U.S. exchange. That company shares up 18 percent in today's regular session. Back to you, Melissa. All right. Thank you very much, Aditi Roy in San Francisco. Um, let's go straight to the CEO of Kronos Group to respond to uh, the short seller's allegations. Uh, Michael Gorenstein joins us here on set, the CEO of Kronos. Uh, Michael, great to have you with us. Thanks, what's what's your response? Andrew Left is saying your stock is worth $3.50. He also says, as Aditi had outlined, that you didn't disclose the size of your distribution agreements, only the fact that you had agreements in place with certain provinces. What can you tell us? Look, uh, we think that, that Citron's way off base here, and it's pretty telling that they've, uh, you know, come on and already admitted to, to covering the short. You know, I think our focus the last few days hasn't been on external reports. It's been on, uh, it's really been focusing on what we announced today with Ginkgo and its disruptive potential. And, you know, when we think about why that's so important, uh, it's, it's not just being able to produce uh, the same products our competitors can at a higher purity and a fraction of the cost. It's being able to produce other products that our competitors can't that are really differentiated. So when you hear of, of how amazing and what the market opportunity is of a you know, zero calorie, zero hangover product, that's great. But does it increase your appetite? Or are you going to go eat a pizza afterwards? Or can you actually suppress your appetite? And, and with Ginkgo, one of the things we're working on is THCV. It's a varin that suppresses your appetite. 
rather than increasing. And I do want to go deeper into that because I think that's a, an interesting area for the entire space uh, going forward. But in terms of getting back to this allegation that you're deceiving investors by not disclosing the size mm -hmm. of these distribution agreements, can you tell us what the size of these distribution agreements are? Have you released the size and, and left and, mm -hmm. and other short sellers are, are missing that press release? Does that number, do those numbers exist publicly? You know, I think one thing that's helpful to point to is if you look at Ontario and they've made public remarks that not only are uh, producers prohibited from, uh, you know, from actually giving a size, but they've specifically said they did not give uh, volume allocations. You know, this is a consumer product and ultimately the, the consumer is going to decide who the winner is. That's why we focus on quality and having differentiated products. Uh, this is a you know, distribution. When we have had actual concrete guaranteed purchase orders, like a uh, supply agreement we have with Cura, which is the largest guaranteed supply agreement with a minimum of 20,000 kilos take or pay, you know, we disclose and give that information. But we are always err on the side of caution, being very conservative, uh, and that's something that we've made sure to do here. We'll list where we're distributing product but ultimately, it's going to be a function of sales velocity. So you only want to release sales numbers when you have them as opposed to the size of a potential distribution agreement, what Correct. the sales could be. Correct. I think there's a big difference between saying we are allocating X amount to a province versus the province has said we guarantee we will purchase this from you. So model the revenue base. Do you understand that. that the investors might want to know what the size of the distribution agreement might be so they can mm -hmm. factor in this is, you know, blue sky, this sure. is how much you would sell? Yeah, you know, look, there, there's two things you, you often hear. You know, one, you'll say, well, you don't have enough capacity to fill the distribution agreements. And now, well, you don't have enough of a distribution agreement to, uh, to move your capacity. And I think you, you have to pick one. What we understand is whether it's Germany, Poland, Ontario, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, PEI, Cura, you know, there's a lot of other outlets. We do not feel demand is an issue. Now, you know, the struggle is it is stressful to keep up with demand. Sure. Uh, you know, there is a huge catalyst coming with recreational, but... Uh, as far as which channel will it ultimately go to, it, it's something that's, that's difficult to, and, you know, you're trying to keep everyone happy. On the point of keeping up with demand, uh, you know, a big part of the competitive nature of the space is keeping production costs low. Everybody's mm -hmm. trying to scale, right? right? So that's why there's been so many um, acquisitions in the space, so much M&A. In terms of your costs, what has the trend been in terms of reducing the costs? I mean, Tilray, for instance, was able to go from $4.04 cost per gram in 2016 to $2.84. Mm -hmm. That's a dramatic decrease in the cost of production. Yeah. Have you seen, what is your cost of production right now? And sure. what was it, let's say, a year ago? They, they've absolutely decreased. And I think it's also to, to, important to make a differentiation what exactly that metric sure. means. You know, if, if you look at indoor production, that's a premium product. If you look at greenhouse production, that's going into more of a mainstream bucket. But you know, one of the reasons ginkgo was so important for us is the focus on cost per gram. You're not purchasing an ornamental flower here, right? It, what you're doing is you're looking for an active ingredient that gives you an effect. So with, with ginkgo, the reason we were so focused on that, you know, pure cannabinoid, if you think about, let's say it's 20% THC, which is a great number everyone's happy with, and you can produce that for $1 a gram, and assume it was just completely free to extract. You didn't have to pay your employees, the machine costs nothing, and assume you can get 100% cannabinoid yield, that would still be $5,000 a kilo of, uh, you know, pure active ingredient or five a gram. So the metric should be cannabinoid per gram if or you, the call, right? It's, the call, well, it's not, I mean, it's not, it's not the, quite. The point is you can't, yeah. you can't, you can't run the same metric right. on everybody. Right. I mean, it seems to me, because the news today to me is maybe the most exciting part of the story right now, at least for me, because mm -hmm. uh, the Ginkgo deal means you guys are now exploring different cannabinoids and, and ultimately, whether it's THC or CBD or what mm -hmm. we don't know of yet, 
uh, is what has people excited on the biopharma side. Talk yeah. about that. The way we look at it, flour is really where the market's been you know, uh, today. That's kind of what's allowed in the market. But we all understand value-add products are coming, and that's what we're excited about. So let's look at, you know, like at citrus as an example. Think about oranges. Right? There always is a market for oranges, and there's a market for orange juice. But if you're thinking of all these value-added products with vitamin C, and let's, let's use that as sort of an analog to THC, you know, my question is, if you believe you want to figure out how to make products like airborne and emergency and vitamin C tablets, do you want to go buy an orange farm, squeeze all the juice, and extract that vitamin C? Or do you want to figure out like, what is the most efficient actual means of production? And that's really what the focus is with Ginkgo. And you know, they're the leader in, you know, right. they're, they're on the CNBC uh, 50 disruptor list. They're every industry that they've touched, you know, they've been able to, you know, to work through. So. Last quick question. Will you need to do a capital raise? Uh, we are to... very healthy, healthy in, the, in the capital department. So uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's always the question on people's minds. But if you look at our, in our last quarter, uh, we haven't tapped our, uh, our credit facility that we have in, in place. We have $33 million left on it. Uh, so we're, you know, we're pretty comfortable. Mike, thank you so much for coming by. We hope you'll come back to FAST. Appreciate it. Mike Gorenstein, thank you. Appreciate the it. CEO of Kronos. Uh, Tim, Well, quickly. one of the things that's interesting about this deal also is that they, they basically aligned this deal with performance. And, and I think they're going to be paying Ginkgo based upon how they achieve uh, along those lines. So, um, look, no CEO really should have to justify a you know, valuation that's extremely, extremely rich. I think it's on some level of value uh, that is equated to the success that the company's had. I will say there's names across the space that are involved globally, and I would continue to be looking around. I'm along canopy growth still. It's up 121% year to date. They have the largest market cap to defend. It's basically $12 billion. October 17th is that legalization date in Canada. M&A, end that date is what has kept the marketplace in this sector running. Be careful going into that October deadline. All right. Still ahead, Tesla getting crushed today after Goldman Sachs said the stock could plunge nearly 30% in the next six months. We'll tell you what has them sounding the alarm. More fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla shares sinking today after Goldman Sachs said increased competition could send the electric automaker tumbling in the coming months. CNBC's Phil Abos in Chicago with more on the story. Hey, Phil. Yeah, Melissa, a little over a week after Tesla said it would no longer consider going private, a possibility that Goldman Sachs had been advising Tesla about well, Goldman Sachs has resumed coverage on Tesla. David Tamburino is the analyst there, and he restarts coverage of Tesla with a sell rating and a six-month price target of $210 a share. Now, he's got concerns about Tesla's margins being under pressure, the capital position of the company, and about increasing competition. In fact, Tamburino writes in a note to uh, clients today, we believe the company will see pressure to its lead in EVs as competition catches up. Some of that competition will be coming from Europe, specifically Mercedes-Benz. Today, the company unveiled its new electric SUV. It's called the EQC. It'll go on sale next year. You combine the EQC along with the Audi e-tron. Porsche will have its Taycan in the next couple of years. That's some of the competition that Wall Street is worried about. As a result, as you take a look at shares of Tesla, this is a stock that was a little bit under $300 a share for much of the day, under pressure as Wall Street and investors continue to ask the question about Tesla's capital position, competition, and whether or not this company will need to raise money as it expands production. Melissa, back to you. All right. Thank you very much. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us. Now, for all the talk that we may have about GM's electric, these Mercedes, 
the Audis, the BMWs of the world. These are the first real competitors, right, in terms of the luxury car market to any of Tesla's models right now. Should we be worried? Yes. Well, yeah, Tim answered the question. Yes. Now, let me be clear. And I've said this a number of times now. When, when Elon Musk came out and said funding secured, I thought he absolutely had it. I thought that stock would pin 420 within a week or so. Wrong. But then on the way down, we talked about, you know what? Lost credibility, 280 is in the crosshairs. And here we are now basically 290. So they've gone from a position where they get the benefit of the doubt with everything till now everything's under the microscope. And I think that 280 level is absolutely now in play. If anybody can ramp up EV volumes, it's BMW. I mean, the i3 to me is not a new competitor, by the way. I mean, there's, and I think the Chevy Volt is a competitor also. So uh, my view all along is to treat this as there is zero competition out there um, for a company that had a big head start and has done nothing with it um, is a big problem. You throw in the valuation and then, and then truly execution. Uh, forget the balance sheet, forget Elon Musk. Um, I, I think these are always the issues. But Elon Musk was the name, was the story. And, and there was competition, to Tim's point. There was always this competition out there. BMW, Tim's been talking about for quite some time as far as competition. It's about losing credibility now. It used to be an Elon Musk story. It's no longer an Elon Musk story. He's no longer a tailwind to the stock. So I do think 250 is in the cards first very quickly. All right, coming up, Workday sinking in the after-hour session. The company conference call wrapping up. We'll tell you what is driving the stock right now. And cloud stocks will be a hot topic on Mad Money tonight. Here's Jim on the Kramer cam giving his best plays in the space. Yes, he's back. Jim is back. Find out what they are at the top of the hour. More fast. Still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Workday sinking in the after-hour session despite an earnings beat. Workday is one of the best-performing cloud stocks this year, but one trader is betting there could be a storm brewing in the space. Get it? Cloud stock storm. Let's get to Mike Cohen, San Francisco, to break it down. Hey, Mike. Hi there. Yeah, so we were looking at Oracle today, which had traded about two times the average put volume this morning. And the trade that stuck out to me was a purchase of over 1,000 of the September 46-43 put spreads for about 30 cents. Ultimately, over 3,000 of those traded by the end of the day. That's somebody making a bearish bet that the stock could fall about 6% by September expiration, which falls on the 21st. And I would point out that the company reports earnings on the 13th, and the average move on earnings is also about 6%. And six of the last eight quarters that move has been to the downside, and that seems to be what this trader is betting on. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Co. out in San Francisco. For more options action, you can check out the full show. That's Fridays. 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, we've got the final trades. Stay tuned. It is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Timothy. Well, whether we have a September swoon or not, I really like AT&T here just on valuation support. So, you know, at a time when I think things and maybe even bond yields are looking better, pick one that acts like a bond. Karen. Yes. As we're trying to look for things that are cheap in this market, all the airlines, but I think Delta is the cheapest in terms of value for a great company. Steven. Canopy growth. I thought I was late. I was late, but it's up 25% so far. I'm staying long. Canopy growth, CGC. Guy. I don't know if he's on tomorrow, so wish him a happy early birthday. Coco, beware of options action. Coco, beware, oh, yes. Coco. It was Tyler Matheson's birthday today. Get out of town. Yes. Sounds like a country uh. singer. You know what else is, you know, you know what the, it's trading like it's its birthday? Mm. See the segue there? Yes, yeah. Look nice at HFC. One. Look at that sucker breaking out to the upside. All right. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money starts right now. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 